Please turn in your Bibles with me once again to our text. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And we have been, for several weeks now, considering how the warfare that the, our spiritual enemy how that warfare uh, is waged against us. This is in verse 13, uh, speaking of the prince of the kingdom of Persia being one of Satan's uh, demons uh, who was sent to bring confusion, to seek to dissuade uh, the king of Persia from caring for, uh, for uh, to seek to dissuade the king of Persia from uh, setting Fourth, God's people providing for them. And uh, Gabriel uh, was sent by God to do battle against this evil angel and called for Michael, one of the chief angelic princes as well, to join in that battle. Likewise, since we are focusing upon the matter of assurance of salvation, I want to, I will come to this in the course of the sermon, but John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. One of the most successful ways in which Satan leads us into temptation and into times of effect, ineffectiveness and into times of great discouragement is to suggest to us and to plant the seeds in our mind by way of suggestion about the sincere insincerity of our faith, that our faith really is not sincere faith. <laughs> Uh, to plant those seeds of doubt about our struggles with sin, that we cannot be Christians because we're struggling so much with particular sins in our life. Or to plant seeds of doubt about the love, the justice, the faithfulness of God when we're going through so many trials in our life. Heartaches, sorrow, painful afflictions in our health. How can God love me? How can God care for me? When all of this has been brought as a judgment upon me by God. And doubts about the lack of joy in our life, the lack of peace, the lack of contentment, the enemy will again remind us, well, that's a grace God gives. Joy, peace, comfort. Where is your joy, peace, and comfort? And so if we are going through a great trial and we're suffering in that particular area, uh, the enemy will come and say, uh, you obviously 
uh, do not have God's grace. That joy, peace, and comfort is not prevalent. It's not present in your life. Satan is called, dear ones, the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. He is constantly employed in sowing the seeds of doubt and unbelief in our minds, as he did with Eve in that very first temptation. Hath God said... Now, Satan, as we've already noted, is is not omniscient. He doesn't know what we're thinking, but he does observe by way of scouting reports from his demonic forces what we are particularly vulnerable to by way of our words and by way of our deeds. And when those are observed, suggestions, temptations can be uh, given to us by the enemy in our minds in keeping with those weaknesses that we have and that we've expressed in word or by way of our actions. Our enemy, dear ones, is an expert at using our conscience against us. In fact, the conscience becomes the battleground in warring against the temptations of the enemy to doubt and to disbelieve God's promise of everlasting life to us who trust alone in Jesus Christ alone. Our God who created us, he endowed us made in his image, he endowed us with a conscience that acts as an internal moral judge in either approving or disapproving, approving or accusing our thoughts, words, and deeds. Samuel Rutherford, that uh, godly and learned Scottish minister of the Second Reformation, rightly observed, the conscience is a tender peace, and either the best friend or the saddest enemy. However, dear ones, our conscience, and we need to understand this, our conscience is not the supreme judge of our thoughts, words, or deeds. God alone is Lord of the conscience. James 4.12 makes it very clear that there is only one supreme lawgiver, namely the Lord. James 4.12 says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. In fact, our conscience is only as reliable in what it approves or disapproves as the moral standard to which it appeals, whether to the unchangeable and infallible standard of God's word or whether to the changeable, fallible standard of man's word. If our conscience is appealing to God's word, well, our conscience is going to be rightly directed. If our conscience is 
appealing to man's word, it's not going to be rightly directed. We, dear ones, should neither ignore our conscience, lest it become calloused. If we simply don't care what our conscience says at all, we can go to one extreme where it becomes seared, where it becomes calloused, uh, where it doesn't do what God intends for our conscience to do by way of warning us and telling us when we have violated his law and his commandments and directing us in paths of truth and righteousness and approving of that when we do so. If we simply ignore it and go that extreme, it can become calloused. Nor to the other extreme should our conscience, should our conscience be worshipped, lest it become a god unto us. That whatever our conscience says must be right, when in fact we can have an erring conscience if it's not guided by God's word. We must test our conscience always by God's word. Our conscience can either be used by the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to draw us unto the mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ, or our conscience can be used by the devil to condemn us that we have sinned away the mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Because some of us as Christians have struggled or do struggle with a condemning conscience or a doubting conscience as it relates to our salvation in Jesus Christ, we must recognize that the enemy of our soul, the devil, will use our conscience against us at every turn to lead us away from Jesus Christ, to discourage us, to rob us of our joy and peace and comfort in the Lord Jesus and to lead us into times even of hopelessness and despair. These temptations from the enemy do not reveal that we are not Christians, but reveal to us that we need to know how to respond as Christians to these kinds of temptations. So the main points today are these. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, we're going to look at some examples of temptations to doubt our salvation and responses to those temptations. So that's the first main point. Examples of temptations to doubt our salvation in Christ and responses. And then the second main point is sim simply that of concluding remarks. Next Lord's Day, God willing, we'll talk about the resources, the mighty resources that God has given to us and the armor. We're to be fully armed and to wear and to bear the armor of God as we do battle against the enemy. And so we're going to look at each of those pieces of armor that God has given to us to do battle against the enemy. God willing, next Lord's Day. So the first main point, examples of temptations 
to doubt our salvation in Christ and the responses that go with them. So here are four, four representative examples of temptations. Obviously not exhaustive by way of temptations that the enemy brings into our life to bring about doubt as to whether we are Christians or not. We who trust alone in Christ alone. But they are representative, even if they're not exhaustive. So the first temptation. Satan tempts us with this. Yes, Jesus will save those who trust in him. But your faith is not real. Your faith is not genuine. In fact, your doubts about your faith and your assurance of salvation prove that your faith is not sincere. Understand that the enemy, often in the temptations that he brings against us, utters a measure of truth in the temptation. In this case, Jesus will save those who trust in him. Yes, he will. Absolutely. But then Satan takes a truth and uses it to his own evil and wicked ends to draw conclusions uh, from that truth that God certainly never intended at all. Let me say about this temptation first. There's a difference between a weak faith in our resting in Christ and no faith in resting in Christ at all. A great difference between those. True faith is summarized by the acronym CAT. K-A-T, CAT. The K stands for knowledge. We must have, in saving faith, we must have a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished. Why we need a savior. What is our present condition in Adam if we, uh, if we do not turn to Christ? What punishment do we deserve if we do not turn to Christ? And what has Jesus done upon the cross by way of his atonement and his suffering for all who will come and believe and trust in him? So we must have knowledge. We must also, in the A, in cat, we must also have, and there must also be, assent or agreement that that knowledge is true. In other words, in order to have saving faith, we can't uh, say, well, I'm not sure whether Jesus really died upon the cross. Uh, that's what is said. There's an, I have knowledge that that's what is said, but I'm not sure that that's actually true. No, the second part of saving faith is that we must acknowledge, we must give assent and agreement that it is true. That all the things that we know about our own condition, about Jesus, and about what he accomplished, and what he promises us, if we believe in him, we must have agreement that it is true. Many people stop at that. 
the K and the A. Some churches stop at that, that that's all that faith is. Knowledge and agreement. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's, there's the T. That is trust. We can't simply know that to be the case and agree that it's true. We must rest in it. It must be appropriated to us. We must, must trust in that, that the Lord will fulfill for us who believe and trust in him. He will fulfill those promises. That he's not a liar. And that if we believe in him, he will bring that to pass. Our salvation. That's trust. It's resting in Christ. And so that's what true faith is. True saving faith is summarized by K-A-T. True faith is not is not measured by the size or the strength of faith. But rather, true faith is measured by who is the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus said that even the faith of a mustard seed, that small of faith, could say to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. In Matthew 17, 20. Jesus is making clear there, it's not the size of faith. It's in whom the faith is placed. The object of faith. The question to be asked about true faith then is not, how much faith do you have in Christ, but rather this question is your faith in Christ alone for your eternal salvation are you trusting in your good works are you trusting that something you can do can save you are you trusting in your minister your priest to save you are you trusting in your parents or in your baptism to save you or are you trusting alone in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation? It's the object of your faith, not the size of your faith. The devil will continually bring about doubt when our faith seems so weak. So this temptation to doubt the sincerity of our faith, actually, we can turn it around. Whereas it's supposed to be from the enemy a temptation to doubt, we can turn that around and it can become just another opportunity to remind ourselves that it is Jesus that saves us and not even our faith that saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. And it's our resting in him that unites us to Christ. Resting in him and who he is, what he has accomplished in his death, his resurrection. You see, dear ones, when our assurance is attacked by the enemy, our response should be not to look at our faith, but rather to look at Jesus. 
Faith is like an eye. An eye does not look at itself. An eye looks outside of itself to that which is within its vision. And so faith does not look at its own faith. Faith looks at Jesus Christ. The temptation is, by way of the enemy, is to attack our faith as being genuine, as being sincere. But that's the opportunity to say, I'm not looking at my faith. I'm looking at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we are exercising our faith and our trust in him in so doing. Looking at Christ in all of his all-sufficiency. Looking at Christ by way of his atonement has brought about our justification, our sanctification, and everlasting life. Understand, assurance of salvation, the sense of that assurance of salvation is not of the essence of faith, but is the effect, the effect and the result of faith in Christ and his promise. Our assurance flows from our trusting and looking to Jesus as being all-sufficient. Looking to Jesus, who is a loving Savior, whose arms are always open to welcome us in his mercy and his grace. As with all of the, these examples of temptation to doubt, the enemy will always seek to take our eye of faith off of Christ and off of God's promises and rather to walk by feeling and to walk by sight. But here are the promises, and there are many promises that could be multiplied. But here are a couple. John 5, 24, the Lord Jesus himself says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, half everlasting life, present tense, has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's a promise from God who cannot lie. The promise of God simply stated through the Apostle Paul, Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say believe and then do this and this and this and this and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Stand, always stand, therefore upon the unchangeable, immovable, unalterable, infallible promise of God who cannot lie rather than upon the father of lies, Satan. Why would we trust the father of lies? Why would we listen to him when God, who cannot lie, has made unto us a promise that cannot fail? Memorize God's promises, dear ones. If you struggle in this area, I mean, it's good for all of us, whether we struggle or not, 
to have these handy, these promises handy. But if, particularly if you struggle, memorize, be able to use God's promises when you are tempted to doubt that you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that your faith is insincere, to look at your faith rather than to look at Christ. The second temptation, that, as an example, that the enemy brings against us to cause us to doubt. The enemy can say something like, the struggles and the relapses into the same sins contradict your claim to have saving faith. If you were a Christian, you would have overcome that sin by now. Just a little preface before I talk specifically about this, but just a little bit of background that I think is important to answering responding to this temptation. When we are born again, that is, when we are regenerated by God's sovereign grace and power, we are made alive to God. Whereas before being made alive to God, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were dead to God in our intellect, in our emotions, in our will. We're dead to God, according to Ephesians 2.1. But we have been graciously granted in regeneration and being born again. God has graciously given to us faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ. He has implanted within us in our regeneration. He's implanted within us the seeds of grace and the fruit of the spirit that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. That's the DNA of Jesus Christ. That's this, the spiritual aspects, the moral aspect of Jesus Christ. That's been implanted within us in our regeneration. Furthermore, judicially, all our sins have been forgiven through the atonement of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice offered on our behalf, in which God looks upon Christ and his fulfilling all righteousness for us, looks upon his death and suffering the curse which we deserved, looks upon Christ and says, that is sufficient for the sins of all who trust in me. And so we are forgiven as we trust in Jesus. We're forgiven all our trespasses by faith alone. We're justified, that is, declared righteous, legally righteous before God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ once and for all, never to be repeated justified, declared righteous. Before the judgment seat of God, dear ones, understand, we are legally as righteous as Christ himself.
That righteousness, therefore, can never change. It's not we who would have to change. It's Jesus that would have to change. It's Jesus and his righteousness that would have to become unacceptable before God is judge, before we could be condemned who are in Christ Jesus by faith alone. Now to get to the specific temptation that our falling into the same sins contradicts our claim to saving faith. Though these great blessings are our, uh, each of ours who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, now and for all eternity, they are ours. Understand that God did not annihilate and destroy all sin within us. Okay? We continue to battle. We continue to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of Scripture speaks of this battle, speaks of this war within us. All of the saints, in fact, in Scripture, struggled with besetting sins. And we can just identify a few, but we could go to all of the saints and we could find particular sins that they struggled with. Samson certainly struggled with sexual immorality. Solomon, uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, I'd say he struggled a little bit in that area as well. Jonah uh, said, no, I'm not going, God. Uh, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I refused to go and was swallowed by a great fish. Disciples of Christ, they struggled with unbelief, doubt. They struggled with who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Paul, an apostle in Romans 7:19, likewise struggled, where he says, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That I do. Of course, the fact that sin is yet within us does not excuse or justify our falling into those same sins, but it does explain why we do so. But that's what the whole process of sanctification is all about in this life. Sanctification is all about us growing in putting off the old man in Adam and putting on the new man in Christ. It's all about us accounting ourselves dead and crucified with Christ, the old man, and in his resurrection being made alive. And that's not just fancy words or just uh, uh, some type of uh, way to make us feel better. That is a reality. That is the basis as to why we can overcome sin in our life is because we died with Christ. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion over you. Because you're not any longer, Paul says in Romans 6.14, you're not any longer under the law as a curse, as condemnation against you. You're now under grace. You're under life. You're under mercy a covenant of grace. And so we are to account 
that sin does not have dominion over us any longer in Christ. You see, in regard to this temptation that, that we are tempted to doubt that we're saved because we fall into the same types of sin, how we respond to such failures and falling into sins, our response is, is very indicative of where our faith and our love are. Do we remain in those failures and sins and backslidings do we remain there, enjoying them, delighting in them? Or do we hate the fact that we've fallen? Do we despise the fact that we've fallen and rather look to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? Our response tells us where our heart is. Are we enjoying it or do we hate the fact that I fell again? But God is merciful, God is powerful, God says, I'm not under that, the dominion of that sin. I can say no by God's grace and overcome that sin in my life. There's hope for me, just as there was hope for the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Romans seven fifteen, but what I hate, that I do. You see, that was Paul's attitude. He hated is doing what he knew he should not do, what the law said he should not do, what God's word said he should not do. He hated it. Why did he hate it? Why should we hate it? Because it is sin against God's love. It is sin against God's mercy. It is sin against God's holiness. And so we, again, our response should be, the, God's word says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin. And so the question is, are we grieved by the sin that we fall into? Or, again, do we delight in it? Do we enjoy it? Do we take pleasure in it? Those who are alive in Christ and whose faith is genuine will not continue in unrepentant sin. Paul says again in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Continue to live in that sin into which we claim we died to that sin in Christ Jesus. How can we continue to live and enjoy and take pleasure in that sin? If we're dead men, as it were, to that sin, if we're like a corpse, even when we, as it were, come alive to partake in that sin, but we can't enjoy it. We can't continue in it if we, again, understand what true faith and trust in Jesus Christ is. By looking to the mercy of God in Christ, we will, who trust in Christ, we will arise from those failures. We will repent. We will renew our love and obedience to Jesus Christ, to Savior and King. It's not we might arise when we fall. We will 
arise when we fall. That's the promise of God to all of his people. Proverbs 24, 16. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. They don't rise again. Likewise in Micah 7, 8. Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Don't rejoice because I've fallen, O enemy. O Satan, thou who dost despise me and hate me, mine enemy, don't rejoice because God is going to raise me up. Another temptation, a third temptation, Satan tempts us with this. Look at all of the pain and, and the suffering God has brought upon you. If he truly loved you, and if he was faithful to you, if he was fair, he would not put you into this raging storm that you are presently facing. If you were his dear child, he would not allow these great trials to overwhelm you. These are... This temptation comes this way. These are God's judgments against you because you are not his child. You are suffering because you are not his child. Well, let us be clear that God does not exempt his dear, beloved children from the suffering, from the trials, the heartaches, nor from the persecution of this world. To the contrary, the Bible teaches us that the Lord uses all of that to teach us, to instruct us, to chasten us, to discipline us as a good father. In Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And so... God calls us rather than to look upon what we as his ch dear children suffer when our trust and our faith is in him, not to look upon what we are going through as God's judicial punishment against us, but to look upon that as his chastening, loving, disciplinary hand to correct, to instruct, even if, in the, as in the case of Job, Job was not walking contrary to the will of God. He was even walking in faithfulness to God. It says that he was a perfect man in his time. That is, again, not sinless, but he was, he was complete. He was, he was without blame, but without public scandal at all. And yet, there fell upon him a sore trial wherein he even began to have various doubts. 
that the enemy was able to use in his life to discourage him, uh, to, to bring about some very bitter things that he uttered in the, in the midst of what he was passing through. The Lord is, dear ones, through all of these trials, again, not judicially punishing us. He is teaching us in the school of Christ to look to him. Not to look at the trials. Not to have that as our focus. We can't help but look at the trials, right? To, to, to some extent. But when that is our sole focus, is the trial, then how can we be looking to Christ? The Lord brings those trials so that we see the trial and so that we cry out to him and rest in him and learn from him, to trust him, to draw near to him, to take up his word, to take up his promises in that situation and even to long for heaven to come where there will be no more of these trials that we're passing through here upon earth. You see, the devil loves to hit us with such a temptation as this, that all that we're suffering in this life means that we're not Christians, that God is judging us. He loves to hit us with that type of a temptation, especially when we are vulnerable, especially when we are ill, especially when we are sick, when our resistance to such temptations might be the weakest and when we are the most vulnerable due to the suffering, the heartache that we're going through, the enemy knows that's the time to attack. That's the time to raise the doubt that God does not love you and that you must not be one of his children. Consider how our loving and gracious father dealt with his dear beloved children throughout scripture. We mentioned Job. All of his possessions were taken. That was not enough. All of his children were taken. That was not enough. Then his health was taken. But he continued, even though his, through the trial and temptation, though his faith suffered and was, was weak during those trials, nevertheless, the Lord brought him through that trial. Or, Joseph and the trials he went through. He was unjustly sold into slavery. He was slandered by his mistress, sought to seduce him, and standing for truth and righteousness, he was slandered and thrown into prison. He was there for years for not having done anything but standing for God, standing for his truth. Yes, Joseph suffered. Did God hate him? Did God despise him? Jonah uh, was swallowed by a great fish there for three days, three nights in the belly of the whale. Uh, we read, because he resisted uh, the will of God that God had told him to go to Nineveh to, to preach there. And he said, no, I, I won't go. Um, did God hate and despise him? And uh, the, preparing this great fish to swallow him? No. Uh, God was teaching Jonah, instructing Jonah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into a fiery furnace. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. The disciples 
uh, they feared death. You remember on the stormy sea of Galilee, uh, they cried out, Lord, save us. They thought they were going to die. And yet God, again, put them into that situation, into that very temptation, uh, into that very trial, which was a temptation for them to doubt from the enemy. Paul was given the thorn in the flesh. Jesus, he, he suffered the wrath of man and the wrath of God. Suffered more than any mere man has ever suffered. Did God hate the Lord Jesus? Did God hate all of his saints? Did it mean they were not believers because they endured such trials? God forbid. God brings trials and allows Satan to tempt in this way, not to destroy our faith, but to strengthen our faith, to see that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be with us regardless of what we go through. None of these that we've mentioned were rejected. None of them were abandoned. None of them were cast away, but were loved and taught to per persevere in trusting in the Lord regardless of what they experienced. There was when we exit and come out of those times of great trial and testing, how often can we look back weeks, months, years later, and we have 2020 hindsight and say, Lord, I see now what thou were doing in my life and why, what thou were accomplishing in my life by those trials. Forgive me for thinking I know more and am wiser than thee. He was ever faithful to us, even in the midst of those trials. And so he will be. Whatever you're going through now, whatever you face tomorrow, he will be ever faithful. And then the last temptation that represents the kinds of temptations the enemy will bring against us to bring about doubt, unbelief in our lives, is this. You have no comfort, you have no joy, you have no peace. These are graces that God gives to his saints. Therefore, since you don't have those, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Well, let me respond by saying that like the graces of faith, repentance, love, and holiness, those graces that are likewise implanted within us when we are converted, when we are born again, that is again uh, part of the spiritual DNA of the Lord Jesus Christ that's implanted within us. So likewise, joy, peace, and comfort are graces from the Lord Jesus that are implanted within us in our regeneration when we're born again. However, we need to understand that these graces are not all growing in our souls at the same rate and at the same time in every trial in every temptation, in every affliction, in every failure that we face. It's generally the case that, that we are tempted by the enemy 
to ignore the many times those graces have been, in fact, evident in our lives. To have a very selective memory. To remember all the times that we failed, but not to remember the times where God gave us grace and mercy and love. And that was worked within us. When we had peace, when we had comfort, when we had joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, the enemy doesn't want us to remember those things. He only wants us to remember presently. Where is your joy now? Where is your peace now? Where is your comfort right now? At such times, dear ones, it's very, very important to reflect on God's work of grace in our lives over the long run, not just over the short run, not just immediately. And to be thankful and to rejoice in Christ's redemptive benefits which he has purchased for us and which he has implanted within us. You see, this is really how to respond to that temptation. Remember. It, remember this. It is remembering with great gratitude to God for his work in our life. That, in fact, brings joy, brings peace, and brings comfort. Remembering, not forgetting, remembering what he has done and how he has brought forth those graces in the past in our lives. That's why we are taught in Psalm 105.5, the psalmist says, remember, this is spoken to the church, remember, his marvelous works that he has done. When we become forgetful of his marvelous works in our lives, we open ourselves up to the enemy. We open ourselves up to discouragement, to hopelessness, to despair, rather than to peace, joy, and comfort. Satan wants us to forget. God calls us to remember all the evidences of his grace in our life. Though my comfort at any particular point may seem gone, though my joy and my peace at any particular point may seem gone, gone the God of all comfort abides with me now. The comfort may seem gone to my sense, to my feeling. The comfort may seem gone, but the God of all comfort is not gone. He abides with us still, now and for all eternity. And so some concluding remarks. Six of them that I would leave with you. Always carry with you those precious promises that God will cause all of his saints to persevere in faith and will uphold you through all temptations and trials. Carry with you those promises as we find, for example, in John chapter 6, verse 39, this promise. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, Jesus says, 
What is God's will who sent Jesus? This is what Jesus says. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Not that I might lose even one that was given to me to save from all eternity, but that I lose not even one of those, but should raise it up, raise that soul up on the last day. Or this promise in John 10, 28, which we read at the beginning of the sermon, where Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. What is eternal life? Is it life that is here one moment and gone the next, or is it eternal? Does it last all uh, for eternity? Does it begin now and last for all eternity? That's what eternal life is. I give unto them who trust in him the eternal life, and they shall never perish. That is, they shall never be condemned. They shall never suffer judgment in hell. They shall never perish. And that never uh, is not, does not simply say, and they shall not perish, but never. It's a double negative in the Greek language, which is the strongest way of being able to negate something, to say something cannot happen. Never happen. Never perish. Neither shall any man Pluck them out of my hand. No one can pluck them out of the hand of the Lord Jesus, who is almighty and powerful. The promise that nothing, no one can separate you from the love of Christ. In Romans 8, 38 is another promise to cling to. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No angelic being, Satan, no man, no creature, death, life, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Cling to the promise when the temptation to doubt comes. A second concluding remark. Satan will tempt you to look only at the sin that you have committed. However, and you can tell that's the temptation of, of Satan because Satan only wants you to look at the sin you've committed. But the Holy Spirit certainly wants you to look at the sin you've committed, but the Holy Spirit wants you to look to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus from the sin, to turn to Jesus, to repent of your sin and to rejoice in God's loving forgiveness and his power to cause you to walk in love and obedience to his commandments. That's where the Holy Spirit takes us. So you can tell by way of the temptation. Is that temptation only focusing upon the sin by way of condemnation, condemnation, accusation, accusation? And that's where, that's where it's being leveled against you. Or is it pointing out by way of conviction, yes, you have sinned against me. Now turn to the mercy of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, again, 
Satan is the accuser of the brethren. According to Revelation 12.10, let's not join him and become accusers of the brethren, accusers of our husband, accusers of our wife, accusers of our children and parents, accusers of one another. Let's not join hands with the enemy to become accusers of the brethren. Whereas the Holy Spirit is given the title of comforter. He's the comforter of the brethren, according to Jesus in John 14, 16. A third concluding remark, don't debate with the devil. You can't win by debating, by trying to go back and forth and back and forth. Not that you actually hear a voice, but in your mind, by way of going back and forth with regard to some temptation or having fallen into some sin. When you're struggling, don't get into a debate, debate with the accusing enemy. He's had thousands of years of experience in leading Christians into discouragement and into despair. He's an expert at it. Jesus didn't even engage in a debate with the devil. He simply said, it is written. He quoted the word of God. And that's what we ought to do. Not enter into debate with the enemy. Simply, this is what God says. You're a liar. God only tells the truth. I will stand upon the promise of God. The next concluding remark. When you fall, arise quickly, not slowly. Don't take your time, don't procrastinate, arise quickly because you are far more vulnerable to other temptations the longer you remain under that cloud of doubt, disbelief, and discouragement. Don't remain there. Don't fall into a pity party. Feeling sorry for yourself, get up. Stand, arise by God's power and strength when Again, the temptation comes, or even when you fall into the temptation. The next concluding remark. When the enemy brings doubt to your mind, exchange that temptation for, with something for which you are thankful from the Lord. The temptation to doubt comes, and uh, by way of one of these temptations that we've mentioned or some other temptation, when the temptation comes and you know that you're vulnerable to that temptation, do you just sit there idly, do nothing? Uh, just continue to pour over the temptation? No, exchange the thought of that temptation with something for which you are grateful that God has given to you. Let your, uh, let your soul overflow with thank thanksgiving to the Lord. Recollect, remember what God has done for you. Bring that to your mind to rejoice how God has provided for you. Don't flirt with the temptation. Don't be idle with the temptation. Not only exchange a thought, a, a, a thankful thought for the temptation, but get up and do something. Get active. Get your hands 
working. Get your mind on something that's going to be profitable and beneficial to you. And finally, leave this concluding remark with you. Flee to Christ. Always flee to Christ. There's no hope, there's no help, there's nothing outside of Christ. Flee to Christ. Whatever you're being tempted with, flee to Christ. You see, dear ones, assurance, which is what we want, assurance of our salvation is nurtured where? Where is it grown? It's nurtured in our communion with Jesus Christ. Not at being distant from him, but in communion with him. And when you are in communion with Jesus Christ, let him be your advocate to answer as your advocate all of the accusations brought against you by the devil or accusations brought against you in this world. Let him be your advocate. Let him stand for you. Let him plead your, your, your cause before the Father. Let the devil not take up the accusation with you. Let the devil take up that accusation with Jesus who is our advocate. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is one who pleads as an attorney your cause. And he can't plead for me. He can't plead... Well, you know, Greg Price is such a holy, good, uh, uh, individual Lord. No, what does he plead? He pleads his own righteousness on my behalf and on your behalf. We trust in him. So don't take up this, this battle with the enemy. Send the enemy to your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 33 through 34 addresses this, this very issue. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It's God that declares us righteous. How can the enemy bring an accusation before God against us when it's God that's already said we're righteous in him, in Christ? And then it goes on to say in verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You're not going to get past the Father or the Son in bringing an accusation against one of God's elect. God justifies Jesus died for us and is our advocate. Praise be to his holy name. May we use these means to overcome all temptations to doubt the assurance of our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Please stand with me in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, how we thank thee and praise thee for the word of, of thy truth that thou hast given unto us even today. Lord, we rejoice, we are thankful, we are grateful that we belong to thee. There is no condemnation to us in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. We praise thee, our God, that thou hast, by thy spirit, assured us of the truthfulness as we who are thy children have heard uh, this message, as we have heard these truths declared, our hearts within have rung out and said, yes, that is what God teaches. And it's thy spirit that has made those truths alive to us even today. Lord, may we walk in those truths. We are not guaranteed that we won't have troublous times, difficult times, trials. God, may we grow in being able to use uh, even temptations in our life uh, to become more like Christ Jesus. We thank thee, our God, for thy love for us, for thy tender mercy, and we ask, Lord, we would always flee to Jesus Christ under temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.